Imagine you could start from scratch and create the ideal city. What parts would you keep from your current city? What would you change? How would you design it? Who would be in charge? This thought experiment was explored almost 2,400 years ago in the Republic, a text written by the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. Although he doesn't actually build this ideal city, he does go into great detail imagining how it would be structured and how it would operate. I've always understood it as、um, pointing to the value and way of trying that we might aspire, we might dare to dream about something different. And that actually would take a lot of work to put into practice, but that the most important part is carefully considering what it would mean to reform a society in a way that would be meaningful and might lead to lasting political change. I'm Dimitra Kasimis. I'm、um, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Chicago. Plato poses this hypothetical in order to get a deeper understanding of justice and human behavior, and what it would look like to create a more just society. Even if it's a failure, in the sense of it would be really hard to pull off, that there's great value in starting to think in that way because even that will actually influence your everyday actions, and that that's the beginning of change. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Dimitra Kasimas to discuss Plato's Republic. So,、um, what do we know about Plato, the author? Why do you think he was motivated to write this text? Well, Plato was. Born in Athens,、um, sometime around 427 BC, and he was born into an aristocratic family.、Um, his mother's uncle was Critias, who was the leader of a 30-person junta that took over、um, in 404, 403,、uh, and suspended democracy. And、um, imposed a kind of violent regime for a few months、um, in Athens. This may sound familiar if you listened to last week's episode on Plato's Apology, where we also talked about this violent regime. The regime was led by Sparta, Athens' chief rival. They fought for almost thirty years in what is known as the Peloponnesian War. In the end, Sparta defeated Athens and established an oligarchy called the Thirty Tyrants, which ruled the city for roughly eight months. Plato grew up during this war and was in his early twenties when the Thirty Tyrants ruled over Athens. He turned away from his disillusionment, you know, had to do with politics and seeing how what what might have been、um, a kind of, I don't know, at first、um, an idealistic or or seemingly、um, beneficial political experiment could turn ugly, and I think that that probably.、Um, You know, left a really strong impression on him about what political change, really meaningful political change, looked like. Plato received his informal philosophical training from Socrates, an older philosopher who lived in Athens. Socrates never wrote anything down. Most of what we know about his life and philosophies comes from Plato. Many of Plato's works are written in Socrates's voice, including the Republic. This text is an imagined conversation between Socrates and other characters. 
can you tell us what the book reads like? Like, what's the shape of it? What's the writing like? What you find is that it's a first-person narration. There's a an I that kicks off the text. Um, I went down to the Piraeus yesterday. That's how the Republic begins. It just sort of throws you into the action. The Republic consists of 10 books, narrated by Socrates. In book one, Socrates begins by recounting the previous day's activities, when he went to the port city of Piraeus with a younger man named Glaucon, one of Plato's brothers. They were attending a religious festival. On their way home, they run into Adamantus, another one of Plato's brothers, and Polemarchus, an Athenian nobleman. Adamantus and Polemarchus are headed to Polemarchus's father's house and want Socrates and Glaucon to join them. And they joke around about whether they can overpower, you know, Socrates and convince him to come home. And so very quickly, um, it's a question about the majority, right? The majority, does the majority kind of rule? Um, it's about numbers. It's about power. Uh, and that's just the kind of like, it's just, it's humorous, but it's also immediately you get the sense of how important um, conversation and persuasion is. And when is something... Um, about force and when is it about persuasive speech and the, and the kind of blurred lines between the two of them. They arrive at the house and Socrates starts a conversation with Cephalus, Polemarchus's aging father, on the merits of old age. This conversation quickly evolves into one about justice. As they talk, the other three characters chime in with their definitions of justice. Socrates pokes holes in their definitions and questions them further. Very quickly, you forget that there is this a voice that's narrating the whole thing because you are thrown into the dialogue. But the text is not a dialogue, it's prose. And um, that allows you a kind of, or it affords you a kind of glimpse into um, people's reactions to what's being said. Um, and, it, and it encourages you not to take it all at face value or to question, right? That kind of interplay between people and then the sense of an interiority. Discussions like these were very typical in classical Athens. And so you see really quickly in the Republic that um, these sorts of, of questions about what justice is are the, is sort of the stuff of, of, of light conversation um, but that the light conversation is always kind of moving between humor and seriousness. And the stakes can, can um, become uh, really great really quickly. Why did Plato write in the voice of Socrates? Why didn't he put you know, his name on everything and say, this is, these are my teachings? You know, I mean, it, it seems almost like a kind of worship um, uh, you know, a, a complete love and adoration for this figure in his life. I mean, sure, from one angle, it's worshipful insofar as he devotes his life to creating this figure, bringing him to life. Um, but the question of why he doesn't speak for himself, why he speaks through Socrates is... It's a really fascinating and, and, you know, complicated question because, of course, most people assume that Plato does speak for himself, even though he says nothing himself. And he speaks through, if you want to even say that, right, that's kind of like um, probably a little stronger than what I, would, what I would say, speaks through his characters. There is no Plato character in the Republic. 
So Plato is able to construct a dialogue that explores many different perspectives without claiming any one of them is the correct perspective or even his perspective. And I think all of that in a way is being um, taken up or foregrounded by Plato when he creates that distance between the author of the work and the character. And, the, and then there's the question of, of the reader and how you want to interpret what is being said. There's no one there to tell you for sure that this is what Plato means, right? In book two, Socrates continues his conversation on justice with Glaucon and Adamantus. Socrates points out that there are two types of political justice, the justice of an individual and the justice of the community or city. He concludes that because the city is bigger than the individual, it would be easier to look for justice there first, and then see if there are any parallels to be drawn to the individual. He proceeds to create a hypothetical, perfectly just city based on reason, in order to see how and where justice enters. This perfect city is called Callipolis. What's the kind of point of that approach uh, of, you know, just delighting in the power of reason? He's kind of proposing a hypothetical situation, right? Like, if we were to found a new city, how would we do it? And so that kind of hypothetical, that kind of conditional, you know, if we wanted these sorts of things, if we wanted to understand what justice really is, how would we do it? Um, I think too often when we think about Plato or we think about the Republic, we think that it's a kind of blueprint for constructing this sort of... um, ideal city that is has been of course over you know the 20th century variously described as a totalitarian regime but really we're invited into a kind of thought experiment and that's not quite the same as an endorsement right or as a kind of advocating of a, a regime that you would want to implement although plato isn't offering up instructions for how to build the perfect city This experiment puts society into focus and gives us a new lens through which to view ourselves. There's nevertheless the sense that you can be profoundly altered and provoked into curiosity and new thinking by a really good conversation that you have for hours with a bunch of of difficult and funny and persuasive friends. And that that's where it starts, that change starts in a conversation. In his conversation with Glaucon and Adamantus, Socrates begins to explain how this perfect city would be structured. He believes the founding principle of human society is specialization. Specialization is built on the idea that each person has a natural predisposition for a certain kind of work. For the society to function at its best, every citizen is required to perform their natural role, and no other. A farmer only farms. A weaver only weaves. Socrates goes on to explain that this new city would need a class of people to produce the basic necessities for life, such as shelter, food, and clothing. A city made up of solely these producers would be a healthy city because it only makes what is absolutely necessary for life. Glaucon says this city would never work because it would be too boring. The citizens would eventually desire luxuries such as art, decadent food, and beautiful landscapes. For the city to incorporate such luxuries, new positions would be created such as actors, poets, architects, and vendors. Such a luxurious city, they conclude, would be very valuable and subject to attack from other nations and would therefore need protection. To protect the city, an additional class of people would be needed, the guardians. 
Socrates says that their natural predisposition to guarding the city is a good start, but not enough. These guardians would need to go through rigorous training, both physically and mentally, to ensure they remain strong, reliable defenders, and not thuggish brutes. Their education would be highly controlled, and they would only be exposed to stories and arts that promoted a positive message. For example, they are only told stories in which the gods are shown as good. The gods should never be depicted as murderous or immoral, because the city does not want the future guardians to adopt this kind of behavior. This highly censored education would begin while the guardians were young and impressionable. Sort of heavy regulation of poetry and the arts. And a lot of that had to do with the sense that from a very young age, the way we learn is through the arts, through what we listen to, the stories that we hear, um, the paintings we look at, the way our landscape is constructed. During their education, the best of the guardians are selected and put into another class. They are to become the third and final class of the city, the philosophical rulers. These rulers receive their own specialized training and philosophical education to make sure they are fit to rule this new society. I think the Republic is very concerned with rulership that is concerned with the collective interests of its citizenry. And one of the reasons that the Republic can be read in so many different ways or in the service of so many different political agendas is because I think it tries to collapse the difference between indiv individual and common interest. And so there is no sense in the, ideally in, in the Calipolis, there would be no such thing as a kind of private interest. That what is in your interest as a worker is um, going to be in your interest as a philosopher who's ruling over the city. And I think the, great, the greatest kind of analogy is the, is the shepherd one, you know, the kind of the shepherd kind of caring for his flock or um, the weaver who's bringing different parts of society together. To ensure everyone stays in their respective roles and classes, Socrates shares a fictional story that will be told to the citizens. It is often known as the myth of the metals. The myth of the metals is a kind of founding story that explains the origins of the Calipolis residents who were born with metals inside them. There's a, a tripartite system and each class um, corresponds to a different metal. Members of each class are kept separate from the other classes. They are only allowed to interact with their own class. Another related aspect to that is the rigged marriage lottery. So people are going to think that they are copulating with people by choice, but there's a kind of very complicated system in place to keep people thinking that they are freely choosing, um, but ensuring that they are not mating with people from a different class. And so that's where there are some affinities between what is being proposed and a kind of eugenics model or a kind of social engineering model. And I think it's really difficult to disagree um, with the idea that we're getting some picture of that in the Republic. Two people of the same class would typically produce offspring with the same metal, 
But Socrates says that is not always the case. Sometimes a child is born with a different medal than that of the parents. If that happened, the child would be moved to the correct class. The young generation would be closely monitored to reveal the true class of their soul. This monitoring would be done by the community, because in this hypothetical society, children are collectively raised by the community. That requires people not having an attachment to or even having knowledge of who their biological children are. And so he's really disentangling or untethering, we could say, kinship from biology. So the caring for or tending of, of children is simply not the same thing as giving birth to them. Being a mother in one sense is not the same as being a mother in another sense. I mean, that's one of the most fascinating parts for me of the Republic because Plato is interested in absolutely every aspect of how we live. There's no such thing as transforming politics if you're not going to think about what's happening in the home because that's a space of power. Those are relations of power. And so you have to look really broadly at the different forms that hierarchy takes and rethink what kinship means. Who is kin? The logic behind the myth of the metals is that people wouldn't go along with this class system unless they believed this class was pre-given. Some people interpret this to mean that Plato thought there was a natural order to classes. But Professor Cosima says that this is not the case. He's showing us how important founding stories are and how difficult they are actually to get out of people's minds once they're told over and over and over again. And so he's kind of pointing to the, the strategic benefits and maybe even the political necessity of these sort of founding lies and that every polity, every society has them, has some story that makes it... Um, easier to believe that your place in the world is fixed. Um, it's, a you know, often compared to a kind of um, racial hierarchy because of its invocation of natural difference. But what he's showing us is that natural difference is a kind of artifice. What, what do you think the Republic is saying about authority and and governance and how that's decided and and how it receives legitimacy. What gives you the authority to rule in the Republic is wisdom, is your philosophical knowledge. Socrates tells Glaucon and Adamantus that only philosophers can have knowledge, so they know what is best for the city, and therefore they are in the best position to run it. Because the philosopher pursues truth above all else, their soul acts from a rational place and therefore is just. The philosopher rulers receive the most rigorous training of the three classes. Up until the age of 18, the future philosopher rulers and guardians are in the same class and therefore have the same basic intellectual study and physical training. When they are recognized as potential philosophers, they are taken out of the guardian class and spend the next five years in philosophical training. The next 10 years are spent training in math and then five years in dialectic training. You get the sense that this person is, I mean, they're supposed to actually, as part of their training, spend a lot of time sort of on the ground as, or, you know, um, dealing with people, educating other people. And um, 
there's some sort of experiential knowledge that is part of being a philosopher. I think you actually have to be really good at judging human character. And that's not something you get from books. That's something you get from, at the right time, being exposed to a wide range of people and having a sense of how they tick, what makes them uh, operate, what gets them going. The final years of a philosopher's training require them to educate others. Socrates describes these final stages in a well-known metaphor called the allegory of the cave. Socrates says, you know, imagine that people were living underground, living inside a cave, and you're shackled together, facing a wall against which puppeteers are reflecting shadows. In other words, you can imagine a kind of like shadow shadow puppet situation. Um, and you can't turn to look at each other. And so you don't even have the sense of being part of a collective. You can't turn your head. You can only look straight ahead at what is being put in front of you. And so there's this kind of curious sense in which the whole thing is rigged and that there's a path that leads out of the cave to the sun. By luck or chance, or maybe even divine intervention, one of these prisoners wriggles free and goes up the path, sees the sun, and sees life for what it actually is. So you get the sense that it would be um, really unlikely, but it might happen that you would get up there. Um, and then you have to come back. You have a duty as this enlightened person, you know, as the kind of the philosopher who's seen the light to go back and try to convince other people to educate them and drag them out of the cave. And people aren't going to want to leave. The person who leaves the cave is the philosopher. They are able to see the truth beyond illusion. The last years of the philosopher ruler's training is spent trying to lead people from the cave. In other words, they are trying to enlighten the public through education. Plato is stressing that the importance of education is to lead people as far out of the cave as possible. Some people make it farther than others, which is why some end up as producers, some as guardians, and some as philosopher rulers. The allegory of the cave is, I think, most fundamentally about the difficulty of throwing off assumptions that have become so naturalized, so second nature, that they seem true and pre-given. We are all sort of chained looking at shadows that we take to be real. And the disbelief that we experience when someone tries to tell us that what we think is wrong. It's not just about truth in some kind of philosophical sense, right? It's about getting our deepest presumptions about each other to just get a little bit unsettled. And that, just that little bit of unsettling turns out to require a massive amount of effort and openness. For this new society to work, the public would have to agree that philosophers should rule. This idea seemed difficult to put into practice because philosophers didn't typically hold political office in ancient Athens. Philosophers weren't even appreciated by all of society. Socrates himself was sentenced to death for philosophizing. 
you know, the characters in the Republic talk about how preposterous this is, right? And how you get the sense that that anybody listening to this would also think it was sort of ridiculous um, that you would be able to convince people that philosophers should rule over you. And the whole question, like in philosophy and philosophical, you know, um, conversations about the so-called realizability of the Calypolis, like could this really ever work, really depends on people's ability to think a philosopher is valuable and to recognize that person as um, a ruler. What is what is the Republic's theory of social change? Or what are some of the themes about social change that Plato's text reveals? I think in the Republic's angle, you can't have a people that can rule itself well if it's not well-informed, if it doesn't know how to discern truth from falsity. I'm the problem getting people in a large group to listen to something that might be difficult for them to hear and not just make them feel good about themselves, but might actually require uh, a kind of painful confrontation with themselves or with the truth of a situation. Um, it's a difficult thing to convince people to do. It's difficult to reach them on that level. And so I think that's related to the question about political change because what you see in the Republic is that lasting political change requires radical, a radical rethinking of society, which is to say the abolition of private property and the foundation of greed. In the process of imagining this ideal city, Socrates, Glaucon, and Adamantus all begin to realize the improbability of creating this Calypolis. Citizens would be unlikely to believe in such a rigid class system where philosophers ruled. And even if the city was established, Socrates explains in Book 8 of the Republic how it would inevitably decay, passing through several versions of government on its way to tyranny and the eventual fall of the city. And so there's a way in which he's showing us what this would look like, and then immediately uh, suggests, doesn't suggest, really claims that this wouldn't work. And it wouldn't work because people would make mistakes about who belongs in what class uh, and they would not be as, let's say, mystified or brainwashed as they would need to be to be a total sort of supplicants to this regime. And so I think there's something kind of hopeful in that, actually. One could say... Many visions of utopia sound kind of boring, um, in that once we've sort of solved living together, it drains the the pregnant meaning of social life away. Because partly that's what keeps us animated is like, how do we learn to love? How do we learn to share? How do we learn to do all these things that we need to learn how to do? The Republic would be a really boring book if all it did was describe a roadmap to this stable, permanent society. And instead, it is a kind of unpredictable story. The plot, if you want to call it a plot, is exciting 
because as they keep trying to do this thing, kind of design this new city, they're encountering their own worries, their own presumptions, their own understanding of human nature, their sense that, you know, people probably wouldn't go along with this, or if they did, it would be, you know, short-lived. And so there's something kind of exciting about finding out that it wouldn't really work um, and why. There's something about human nature that's simply resistant to this kind of oppressive and systematic um, what, regulation, regulation of, of human action. So instead of being a perfect blueprint of a perfect society, it's an investigation of imperfect but fascinating human nature. Yes, it's an investigation um, and that there's something really enlightening and gripping about undertaking such a serious thought experiment that you actually find something out about human nature when you seriously attempt to consider what a new political regime would look like and what would be required to keep it in place. It isn't a matter of using violence to take over a city and imposing a new set of rulers. You actually need to think very carefully about what human beings are like, that they have desires, that they need to be educated, that they're going to disagree, that they aren't going to be self-sustaining, that they're going to need to import, you know, goods from other cities and open the door to foreign influence, that they might end up being at war with their neighbors. All of those things come into the Republic and really complicate our understanding of what a utopia is. Some readers have interpreted it as a blueprint for society. Early 20th century German scholars and high school students read the Republic as advocating racial hierarchy. This idea was eventually adopted by Hitler and the Nazi party. To read that as um, an endorsement, I mean, the Nazis aren't alone in that, right? But it means kind of um, attributing these ideas to Plato, which, as we were saying before, is really difficult to do. Um, and also missing the really crucial part, which is that the idea of nature, if you want to use the term race that comes out of this, is actually really artificial. There isn't a sense that this is like nature in the sense of biology. This is nature as in kind of acculturation. And also people in the Calypolis are probably going to judge incorrectly from time to time and put someone, you know, with a different kind of aptitude or capacity, you know, in the wrong class, and then the whole system kind of falls apart. There have also been other readings of the Republic through the years. The attachment to natural difference, I think, stays with us um, through, through the kind of Cold War interpretation and the kind of even the anti-totalitarian um, efforts that readers of Plato um, were engaged in, just because they really are just engaged in the kind of, they're engaged in debunking what you get out of, let's say, a Nazi appropriation of Plato. 
but you also get feminists reading Plato, right? You get um, you get communist readings of Plato, and then more recently you get um, you get readings of Plato that read the Republic as a kind of you know in the service of a kind of democratic self criticism. Like, what can he teach us about democracy, even if he's not a huge champion of democracy? So Plato lives through this dramatic, tumultuous, you know, overthrow of the government and then, and then the reversal. You know, again, returning to how does sustainable change happen? And he seems to suggest that it, it isn't from heroic leaders or, you know, even tyrants or kind of these single savior figures, but that it's this slow process of changing hearts and minds growing wisdom among each person, which, you know, again, is why he seems to place so much emphasis on excruciating slow process of, of communal education. <laughs> like any change is going to require like cultivating those changes within new generations. Um, and so, you know, once again, change, change is possible, but we should look within ourselves and then be willing to you know, share whatever knowledge we have that we're pretty convinced will lead to a better social order person by person, conversation by conversation. That's right. We should be willing actually to be honest about what we think rather than pay lip service to what we think the other person wants to hear or what we think is right. And that comes out in the Republic over and over again because there's this sense that if someone is merely concerned with saying the right thing but not doing the right thing, then nothing will ever change. I don't think there's any kind of permanent success, by the way. I think political life for Plato is... It's the realm of the changing. It's it's always moving. It always requires a kind of um, responsiveness to a new set of circumstances. People think different things, and people are always changing, and their needs are always shifting. Plato was actually right in a lot of ways that like you can't reform some small piece of society when like contradictions remain in other huge ones. So like. You know, if you want equality, well, you know, nuclear families will just inherently seek the welfare of their own children. And and then that causes all sorts of, you know, inequities in schooling, inequities in, you know, in, in meritocracy. So if anything, Plato seems to be right, but it's sort of, once again, it's not clear that there's an answer. It's not clear that... We would take, um, we would be willing to do what a total, a total approach would take, um, which is which is challenging for anyone interested in like how do we move towards a better, more just society. The picture you get in the Republic is one of heavy, heavy regulation, heavy social engineering. Lack of individuation, lack of social mobility, lack of the traditional nuclear family, intolerance of dissent, 
hierarchy. Now, these don't seem very appealing to us. The question is what the meaning of all of that is. Why is it that in a discussion so concerned with fending off instability and political change, you would come up with a society that seems so oppressive. If you're, if you're kind of saying that stability and lack of conflict is a good thing, something that you know people should be invested in pursuing, then what are you doing <laughs> providing this picture of something that looks pretty terrible and, and actually kind of impossible to pull off? It's kind of a fantasy, this, this political stability. What it would look like to get that would be, um, you know, even if we thought it was possible, it would be so at odds with what human nature demands, right, and wants, um, so ill-fitting with that, that probably what we should all just admit is that there is no end to political change. Okay, so then the question is, what do you do? You aspire. You aspire to stability. You aspire to political um, change, if that's what you want. You can have a goal of fixity, but I think to believe that fixity is desirable without realizing that it is just a kind of... Um, an aspiration is dangerous because I think in the name of stability, you get a lot of stuff that you actually don't want. You get oppression, you get hierarchy. So there's a question at the end of the Republic about what we're supposed to take from this experiment that seems so difficult to pull off and so undesirable, actually. Like democracy starts to look not that bad. The ideal city of Kallipolis wouldn't work in practice, but the thought experiment is valuable anyway. Through this conversation, we get deeper insight into human nature and human behavior. Humans aren't stuck in place. We're constantly changing, and we need a government that can evolve with us. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.